Over the last seven years, I have tried every kind of marketing you can possibly imagine for my business. And I have determined over that time that direct mail has been by far the most profitable marketing channel I have ever tried. And I've spent over a million dollars just testing it out figuring out what works and figuring out what doesn't. And through that time, I've been able to generate over 100 deals per year in my business using direct mail. And now I've created a very small but very powerful mini course on how I utilize direct mail in my business. It explains everything I do from A to Z, and I've made this available to you absolutely free. That's right, no charge, no obligations, just go to my website, mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail to find out how you can implement my system in your business and start generating more leads through direct mail. Go check it out. It's absolutely free. I can't wait for you to try it. Yeah. So it, it's funny. I didn't actually sell a property until 2020 or 2021. So very oh, recently score. I was a buy and hold investor through and through. Yeah. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. I'm happy to have you here and I'm happy to be here with you. I have a fun, fantastic interview. Uh, I am talking to Michael Albaum and uh, Michael is living a nomadic lifestyle. He's living in a van. He's traveling the country. He's running a podcast. He works for Roofstock. He's an investor. He's buying multifamily. He's buying short-term rentals in different areas of the country. Just really, really dynamic, fun, interesting real estate investor. And uh, he's doing it in a way that I just find fascinating. I could not live in a van and travel the country. I'm not built like that. I need my house. I need my things. I need my bathroom and all that stuff. Uh, but he's doing it. He had this van like designed and created so that they could travel. Him and his wife could travel the country and work remotely. Just so, so cool. Some of his adventures and the things he talks about and the way he's doing his business is just really inspirational. But the number one thing I took away from this interview was that he's living life on his terms. He's doing what he wants to do, how he wants to do it. And I love that message. So I'm excited and enthusiastic if you can't tell, to bring you my interview with Michael Albom. So without any further delay, I give you Michael Albom. All right, Michael, thank you for agreeing to be on Just Our Real Estate and thank you for being a guest. I appreciate your time, man. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. Super excited to be here. Yeah, same. I am too. This is going to be a fun interview. I, uh, you know, I always do background, not checks. That sounds like I'm running credit. We <laughs> do background searches. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I, I noticed you have some criminal record now, um, but which I try to become educated about the person I'm talking to. I mean, it's fine to discover things on the interview, but I, I really don't like um, when I listen to interviews and I can tell clearly the host doesn't have a clue who they're talking to. And so I try not to do that. And so in doing so, I, I learned some cool things things about your past and stuff that you're up to that is going to be a lot of fun to dig in and kind of unique and interesting for the audience. So I'm excited to do that. Uh, and they've heard a little bit about you, uh, your bio uh, that they just heard just now. But can you give the folks just in your own words, a little bit better um, in your own words, background of who you are and how you arrived where you are in your life right now? Because you, you, you have done some neat stuff. And so how did this all, <laughs> how did this all unfold? 
Why are you Thanks. not working a cubicle job? Why? Yeah. Thanks, Mike. So I'm just a regular guy, regular Joe Schmo. Um, grew up in Southern California, did the things that everyone, I think I'm sure a lot of your audience was told to do, go to school, get good grades, get a good job, and then you'll be kind of set up for life. So did all that, was working a band. Bay Area engineering role uh, that I really liked, but quickly realized this isn't going to get me where I want to go fast enough. So got my hands on Rich Dad Poor Dad, which again, I'm sure a ton of your listeners have checked oh out and gosh. got inspired by. If there was some sort of a like, you know, residual check that was owed to Robert Kiyosaki for people who read that book and, and became successful, he's already a probably a multi, you know, maybe a billionaire, a but he'd be a trillionaire, like a gazillionaire. Like I can't tell you the amount of people that have told me that, but that's, yeah. I, I know, I know. I, I think one of the things is like, it's such a great equalizer in that it's an easy to read book. It's yeah. not complicated financial. It's not complicated yeah. uh, uh, from a strategy perspective. Just, hey, this is a story. And the 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 morals and the the what what you're going to get out of it is so easily extractable and so easily yeah. relatable. So it that book just kind of slapped me upside the head and, and I realized I didn't know as much as I thought I knew about money and it kind of changed the way that I thought about money. Yeah. So being an engineer, uh, real estate investing really resonated with me just from a conceptual standpoint. I understand, I, like I could wrap my head around it because I lived in a house. I had seen houses. I knew that people did this. <laughs> yeah. I knew I wasn't the first one having to do it. So I played yeah. around with some spreadsheets. I got self-educated for about two years. Bigger pockets wasn't around. Podcasts weren't really in my life at that point. So I was trying to piece it all together for myself. And eventually spent two years getting self-educated, went and bought my first property. And when that first rent check showed up, I'm like, bing. I'm a genius. Yeah. I've just solved the Rubik's cube. Uh, <laughs> lo and behold, right? We, tons of people have before me, but I just realized, okay, this is really powerful. Yeah. And so I said, if I can do this once per year for 10 years and 10 years, I'll have 10 properties. And that sounded like a good number. And so was just continuing to do that. And I was working hard, trying to earn more, live well below my means. I was always living with roommates. I never lived alone in cheap apartments, cheap houses. And so I was just funneling all of my money into real estate. And I had definitely had uh, like a cheat code growth hack, if you will, and that my territory for work was the Northwest US. So I was traveling all over the place and work was paying for a lot of my travel and a lot of my living expenses. Yep. So every market that I was in for work, I would just look and see what the real estate market was because now I'm a self-proclaimed real estate investor. Yeah, that's so, smart. Ended up buying properties all over the place. And I'm again like, ding, light bulb moment. I'm a genius. I'm so smart. If anything happens in market A, I'm in B through E and vice versa. Yeah. But it, it just, I hit this inflection point, Mike, and it just became too overwhelming. Chasing down six different property managers for six different properties. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yep. Real pain in the butt. And so I think there's a point where you can get too diversified. And that's, I think, where I ended up. And so a friend of mine gave me some advice. He says, look, go target one or two markets, get laser focused, watch what happens. It'll blow your mind. Yeah. And I said, that's kind of counterintuitive to everything I thought I knew about investing, but I'll give it a go. And that's what I've been doing for the last four, five, six years. And it's really been amazing. Yeah, the the diversification in different markets, that was exactly what I thought. You go to all these different markets, you're looking at the real estate, you're buying properties like you lose some of that economy of scale, right? You lose some of that exactly. efficiency by being so spread out. Um, so you you said bigger pockets wasn't around, podcasting really wasn't a thing for you. What year are we talking when you sort of got rich dad, poor dad, and you, the light bulb went on and you started educating yourself? What years are we talking? 2012. Okay. Okay, so just after the recession and people were like, oh, real estate's the worst thing ever. Don't touch it. 10 foot pole kind know, of a thing. I know, it's so, so funny. I was like, it's like, okay. you know what, it, when people say that, this is a good lesson for people listening now because, you know, depending on who you talk to, we're, we're, we're about to go through something or we're heading into it or we're in, we're in it right now, however you look at it. But the fact of the matter is when when the media says 
don't do something, there's a really good chance you might want to look at doing it. Because, <laughs> you should go do it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember I started my real estate career in 08. <clears throat> that was when I bought my first house. In the in the media and everybody was yelling, screaming, get away, right? Like you said, run, 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 real estate bad. Like, like just literally real estate bad. No, 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 de- <laughs> no details needed. Just it's bad, right? Right. And and I I was going into it anyway, and I was sort of like clueless about what I was doing, and I didn't really know how good of a deal it was. But I know this: when the media tells me to stop buying real estate again, I will a hundred percent be going in like you know, hardcore, uh, because it was a great time to get in. So that was a great time to get in. Although you bought all over the place and you were diversified. When did you start selling off the properties that were in all these different States? Like what year was it where you started, um, being a little more laser focused? Yeah. So it's funny. I didn't actually sell a property until 2020 or 2021. So very recently I was a buy and hold investor through and through. Yeah. And so I was refinancing properties all that while to gain access to equity and cash to be Mm -hmm. able to continue growing and doing more deals. But I didn't sell anything. I thought I would never sell to be honest, Mike. Um, and so I, instead of like chasing all these property managers, I just kind of sat them down and said, Hey, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm not focusing on this anymore. This isn't a growth market for me. So mm-hmm. like just taking a run. And by that time we'd been working together for six, seven, eight years. Yeah. So I already had that good working relationship. So that was a pretty easy handoff, if you will. Got it. Um, but okay. I found an opportunity that I wanted to, to buy and didn't have any access to cash. So I sold again, those first properties uh, in 2020 and just moved some of the money over. Well, if you bought them in the 20, you know, 12 to 20, 14 range 2015 and just sold them in 2021. That's, that's awesome. Thank congratulations. Cause you must Thank have you. totally killed it. So yeah, that, they worked out really nicely. Yeah. That's awesome. Really so nice. just out of curiosity, um, how did you get your hands on rich dad, poor dad? Was it just dumb luck? Did somebody give it to you? Did you seek it out? Like, how did you get your hands on it? Yeah. I, the story I like to tell myself is I went and sought it out, but I'm pretty sure my dad gave it to me. He's like, yeah, hey, I think you should read this. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, you know, it's yeah. funny. I, Year, years ago, like 10 years ago, I, I told my daughter who was then like 12, maybe 12 or 13, I paid her to read it. Like I said, I'm going to give you this assignment. I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars, but you have to read this and I'm going to give you quizzes and there's going to, you have to write a book report. I want to know you right. read it and know you understood it, but I'm going to pay you to do that. And she now is in, she's flipping houses and she does do it full time because oh she gosh. loves her career. She's a social worker and she loves that. It's her passion, but she's flipped houses. She's buying short-term rentals. Like it seeped in Love and she it. was the least capitalist person you'll ever want to meet at growing up. And even still, right. She doesn't like, she's not like, I need to be a millionaire, but she's an entrepreneur. And it just, how much of that book, like, took root, you know, deep inside of her and now is blooming. She's the only one in my family who does that. And she's the only one we made read it. So interesting. Interesting. I know. Interesting. Kind of an experiment I did on my kid, but it worked. It was kind of cool. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, yeah, it was good. And what's was, the worst that could happen is like, they don't like it and they ended up reading a book. Okay. So I know. Like, you're out a hundred bucks. And the thing is that she was totally against reading it. Like she had no interest in like business and making like money to her at that age was like, ah, I don't even care. You know, who cares about money when you're 12? You don't care right. because I make it and you benefit, but she didn't care about it. She wasn't <laughs> into it. And, uh, and it sort of like took hold in her. So uh, everybody out there listening, have your kids read it. But however you have to do it, have them read it and let's just see what happens when they're older. So love it. So, so talk to me about I, one of the cool things that I found out about you um, when I was 
researching and kind of figuring out what we could talk about today is that you have this or had, I don't know if you're still doing, I think maybe a pandemic sidelined you a bit. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you had this sort of nomadic uh, experience where you were you were mobile, living in uh, some sort of van or some sort of a mobile thing and investing and sort of living that life, which is, um, I'll be honest, it's completely against my nature to do that. I'm, I'm a planner. Like when someone says, hey, let's go camping tomorrow. My brain goes, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't plan any of this. Like how, <laughs> what's going on? I need more information, right? And yeah. so I'm obviously not the kind of guy who would typically do that, but it interests me. How, how did that come about and how did that work? Yeah, totally. So <sighs> rewinding the clock back a little bit to 2018. So my father passed away. Um, semi-expectedly, he was, he was sick for a while with cancer. Okay. And so I was, I asked my job if I could go totally remote and work from home, move back home with my mom. And at then the time, my girlfriend, now wife. And so we were just kind of being able to help support mom and, and be there for her. So they said, okay to that. So that was three or four months. And then I came back to work. I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. And so I said, hey, look, I need six months to just go and be and do and just totally unplug and kind of do a mental reset. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And I said, well, then I'm sorry, I can't work here anymore. So that's when I kind of quit the nine to five world. And that was 2019. Okay. So um, my wife and I said, let's just go travel for a year. Let's go and live in countries and explore countries that are cheaper than here because we've got this real estate backing us up. My wife had a remote, a total remote job at the time. Anyhow, so we were like, this is perfect. This is the opportune time to do that. Yeah. So we went and did that. And um, we're just all over the place, having a ball, having an amazing experience. I was picking up some remote freelance work as well. Because uh, at about that time, I had two fires in a property that I was redeveloping. And uh, I was like, I need some more money to finish this thing. So yeah. <laughs> picked up some side work. And um, it was just this amazing experience. And then we woke up in Lisbon, Portugal one day in April to friends and family texting, calling, emailing, get home now, the borders are closing. So we were like, uh oh. So we came back to the States, uh, very eerie flight, very eerie experience through customs. There was like no one on the road at San Francisco airport, which was yeah. just a super weird thing. So then we were living on the central coast of California during the pandemic. And Moi says to me, she's like, I'm not quite done traveling. I want to go. What if we did this whole van thing? And I'm like you, Mike, I'm a total planner. I'm an engineer at heart through and through. Like, I want to know yeah, all the right. details, the steps, okay. like what's, how it's going to play, play out. Yeah. And she's like, let's do this. And I was like, we can't like, and she goes, why? Then I didn't really have a good answer. So she really pushed us and encouraged us to do that. So we found a van. We had a buddy that used to work for a van conversion company. He built it out. We did all the design work alongside him and said, this is what we want. This is how we want to lay out and look and stuff. So he built it. And then we moved into a van full-time uh, for the wow. better part of eight months and rented out our house that we were living at. And we're just all over the place. All right. couple of questions. Number one, you're right. I didn't think about the fact you're an engineer. That that should have been my first question. How does an engineer go live in a, in a van? But thank God for wives that balance us out, right? Like nobody needs Massively. to be that extreme in one direction. You need someone who can pull you out of your comfort zone a little bit. So kudos to her. But here's a here's a practical question. What do you where do you go to the bathroom? Do you just like stop at like restaurants and fast food restaurants? Is that where you go to the bathroom and, and take a shower for that matter? Yeah. So it's a really good question. So we thought about that during the design phase because we were middle of the pandemic and we had driven home from Central California to visit my mom in Southern California several times and all the restrooms were closed. Yes. All of the physical buildings were yeah, closed. Yeah. So we said, okay, we have to account for this. So we um we had a shower built in 
full-size shower built inside the van. We got a tankless hot water heater. We bought what's called a cassette toilet. So it's basically whatever you go to the bathroom in, it'll seal it up and then bring you a fresh bag. And then for, for liquid waste, we had just basically a tube and a funnel kind of medical, medical grade that we would dump, you know, in the side of the road, wherever in in empty fields, whenever we needed to. All right. How do you stand up in a shower in a, in a van? You could stand up in this van? Totally stand yeah, up? Yeah, it's, wow. it's six feet. It's six foot clear height from, okay. from floor to ceiling. And I'm not a very tall person. I don't know if you can tell from the video recording, but like I'm 5'8". My wife's 5'5". Five five, so we were like, okay. this is awesome. Like yeah. we've been in hotels that we have to kind of scrunch down right, to, right, right. to use the shower. But no, it was awesome. That's awesome. Wow. So what was some of the... What was... Let's just, uh, I, I could ask a hundred questions about just this lifestyle, <laughs> but I don't want to lose the listeners too badly. What was your biggest challenge that you didn't foresee as it relates to maintaining your business? Was there any were there any stumbling blocks or challenges that you were like, ah, we didn't really consider this. We have to we have to problem solve here. To be honest, no. Okay. The I think the most difficult thing was so in 20, let's see. 2019 is when I got connected with Roofstock and started doing cons- consulting and coaching work for them and 2021 yeah, 2021 went full time with them, and we were still in the van at the time. Oh. Um, and so I think the hardest thing was I was still running podcasts. We we have a podcast called The Remote Real Estate Investor. So I was interviewing people from the road wherever I was, and so we we accounted for that, and we we bought a uh, a thing called a WeBoost, which basically boosts cell signal, and then we had a hotspot which converts cell signal into Wi Fi, okay. and so that's what I was using to podcast. But the as you know, I mean, the the data usage on that is pretty high. And so if we were anywhere that didn't have a great connection or didn't have good cell coverage and the WeBoost wasn't working that well, that was kind of challenging. So okay. I was definitely in some pickles where I was like, I guess we can't do this podcast today. So that was the hardest thing. But other than that, not really. Because I had done it for the last year internationally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you tell Roofstock when you started working with them that you were living in a van? Did they know this? Yes. Oh, okay. So when I started doing like consulting with them, I was all over the world, kind of in different other countries. And so that was one of my stipulations was like, Hey, if I'm coming on board to do this totally full-time, dedicate myself to you all, this is not like, this isn't changing. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, no, we get it. Like you've, you've clearly, you can clearly do this. So like, whatever, that's awesome. That's cool. What, how did that come about? How did, why did you start working for them? How'd that even happen? Yeah. So my wife, um, so when my dad passed away, we moved home, like I was sharing with you. And so my wife was working in an in-office job that she wasn't able to do remote. So she said, Hey, I got to quit. And so she went through this platform called Upwork, Mm -hmm. which is just a freelance website. Some people know it, maybe others don't. Um, And she picked up a gig, just project gig there. And that's actually how I got connected with Roostock is some, they needed someone to make, help make their education program, make content and PowerPoints. And I was like, okay, like that sounds kind of interesting. That's not really what I'm doing now. I was still working as an engineer, but yep. I said, whatever, I'm, I'll, I'll do whatever because it's remote and it brings me an income. So I said, this is, this is great. And so one thing kind of led to another and they said, oh, this is great content. Like we need coaches as part of this program. Do you want to be the coach? I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. I mean, I talk about real estate all the time. Anyhow, may as well yeah. get paid for it. Yeah. Nice. So they hired you through Roofstyle or I'm sorry, through Upwork. Is that how they found you? Yeah. That's how we got connected. Was originally they use through Upwork. Upwork to hire folks? So they were, it was just supposed to be a contract gig. Oh, they okay. needed someone to do this particular I thing. I see, I see. And okay. so I did the thing and they said, hey, we kind of like you. If you like us, do you want to you know, keep dating, so to speak? And I said, <laughs> yeah, sure. Sounds great. Let's let's see how this evolves. So what do you do for them now exactly? Are you just, you're just creating content? Like, what does that look like? 
Yeah. So now I'm the program manager for the Rustock Academy, which okay. is the education program that I helped create. And now we run. And so it's got videos, content, lectures, one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching. And so I serve as the head coach as well for that program, nice. uh, as well as make content, YouTube, podcast. Yeah. So you, your goal was originally to do to get back way back when, right? Back 2012 or whenever you started to get 10 properties. That was like, that sounded right. like a good number to you. What is your, what's your, what does your business look like now? And what is the current goal? Yeah, it's a really good question. So as we were, as I was just evolving throughout my investing career, I went out of state and got involved in multifamily fairly quickly. I bought two single families in California and I was like, screw this. When I was outside traveling for work, I saw how much further the dollar could go. So started yeah. buying like five family, eight families, 10 families. Uh, and so to, I was in growth mode for a long time. And I was like, I want the biggest portfolio possible. Like yeah. screw 10, I want a hundred because again, a hundred <laughs> sounded good. And yeah. all these big players in the space were talking about these massive property portfolios. Yep. And it just, again, it got unwieldy. It got top heavy. It got to a point where I said, this isn't like this isn't me. I'm hit. I'm shoot. I'm hitting. Trying to hit this number because someone else said that that's a good number to hit. Yeah. And so I started trying to do more with less. And so I said, let's scale back on the acquisitions. Let's scale back on the value add projects and just look to do more with less. And so now I'm at 61 units. I've sold off at the peak. I was at 75. I sold off some of those. Uh, just trimmed the fat. Got tried to get leaner. Tried to get easier managing properties. Yeah. And I said. I kind of had a, a um, uh, an epiphany, a life epiphany that my wife and I were chatting about. And we said, if this doesn't feel easy, if this takes up more mental bandwidth, let's not do it. Even though it might be a great deal, even though it might make total sense on paper, yeah. like if it takes us away from the things that we want to be doing, which are spending time with each other and enjoying life, that's pulling us in the wrong direction, Yeah, which I did for so many years at the beginning. So yep. I said, let's Having learned from that, let's let's do things differently going forward. So we're trimming down the portfolio. We're buying short-term rentals, doing things that are just a little bit easier to manage, uh, and that's that's kind of where we are today. And going forward, looking to continue growing the single-family uh, short-term rental portfolio and just doing things that are that feel easy. Okay. So one thing you said that's I think is really important for people to hear because I've ex I experienced this personally, just like you, and I've because I do coach people, I've I've watched this happen to a lot of people where you get involved and you start surrounding yourself with investors and their goals become your goals. And before you know it, you're you're on this hard charging path toward a goal that you never really wanted, but you thought you wanted because somebody else wanted it and they made it sound really attractive that they wanted yes. it. I did yes. the exact same thing. I started creating this rocket ship that was going Mach 4 to the moon. <laughs> and I was like, good Lord, this isn't fun at all, right? And, and it, at a point, it became top-heavy for me too, where we were like spending almost what we were making. And it's like, what are we doing, you know? And so we yeah. we made some changes too. And like the net dramatically improved and it was just such a better thing. But you mentioned, this is, I just want to, I don't want to like pick on something you said, but it sounded counterintuitive. You said you wanted to work on, you wanted to have rentals that were less work. And then you said short-term rentals, which... I think like common thought is a long-term rental is less work. Short-term rentals are more active and more inherently more work because you have, it's like, it's a hospitality business and you have people mm -hmm. coming and going every half a dozen days or more, right? So how is that, how is that less work for you to do short-term versus long-term, for example? 
Yeah, it's a super good question, and it is totally counterintuitive. And I think the the magic bullet here, the silver the silver bullet in long term or short term, is the management. Mm. And so I don't manage ninety nine percent of my portfolio okay. of the short term rental stuff. Love it. I do manage. We we have a house hack here where I'm currently living, so we we manage the upstairs unit that we rent out, okay. and then we manage our old primary that we used to live out on the Central Coast <clears throat> because it's easy because we know it. We have our network there. Yeah. Um, but from a, a remote perspective. I've handed everything off to property managers. And so that just goes to, to further the point of like, you have to run your numbers. You have to be super yeah. diligent and understanding because there is this, there's this big overhead, like management's a, a financial drag. Yeah. There's no question about it, but I couldn't make the investment without them. True. Yeah. I love that. And I, people ask me, I just got asked this question the other day. At what point, they were talking about long-term rentals, but they said, at what point does it make sense to have a management company? And I said, for me, the first rental, like, I don't want to manage these, right? And I get it. It's it's a cost. But I cal- that's a that's an expense that I calculate in, like vacancies and maintenance and anything else, right? I just calculate that in because I don't want to deal with the calls or the headaches or the hassles. So for me, number one, they had like, this person asking me had like 15 rentals. And they're like, at what point should I have a management company? I'm like, why don't you yesterday. have one already? Yeah, yesterday, <laughs> right? Uh, I love that. So how are the short-term rentals? Are the short-term rentals all over the place? Like you mentioned focus back, you know, maybe a while back, you were focusing on, on just a couple areas. Are you now opening up the short-term rental market all over? Or are you still focusing in just one or two locations? No, I I tried to learn from the past, learn from my past mistakes and not make the same mistakes again. So I'm focused exclusively out in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, which if anyone has heard about short-term rentals, they've probably heard of the Smoky Mountains. Yep. So yep. It's, a, it's a super hot market, um, but that experience has been really wonderful. It's been really great working with the same property manager for all the properties out there. It makes it so easy. It's very, very much plug and play, okay. which is what I experienced on the long-term side. So I said, okay, let's apply the same thinking to the short-term space. Totally. So this, I have heard of the Smoky Mountains as it Realize the short-term rentals. There's a few people that talk about it, you know, pretty publicly. Um, is it still? Is there still a, a decent opportunity there, or is it just saturated? And it's very. Is it like cutthroat, very hard to find deals, or is it like a reasonable place for people to go and try to build short-term rentals? Yes. <laughs> so I so I just bought a deal off the MLS uh, back in May that we closed on. So <clears throat> people are saying, oh, you have to find off-market like. Yeah, that's probably helpful, but you don't have to. Yeah. And I'm, you know, we just did it. So I was chatting with my property manager the other day, and he was saying that over the last, I think, 12 months, he said, and don't quote me on this, but something like 3,700 new short-term rentals have come online. Wow. And so there's just a lot of supply from the existing short-term rental space side of things, but there's also a ton new getting built. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're forecasting out, We've got new short-term rentals that weren't previously short-term rentals, and we've got new inventory being built. Yeah, that si- kind of sounds like a recipe for oversupply. Yeah, and so I would be thinking about, okay, well, what are you going to do that's going to set yourself apart so that the 14 million people that do happen to go visit the Smoky Mountains every year are going to select your property over someone else's? Got it. The other thing, though, that I that I think personally, Mike, is just that people are changing the way in which they travel. And I think the Smoky Mountains has always been a very heavy vacation market, a drive-to vacation market. Yep. It doesn't cost a lot of money for so many, so much of the country to physically get there. Yep. And so if people aren't comfortable with international travel or can't afford or don't want to spend the money on international travel, they're still going to go take the family somewhere to vacation. Yeah. And so if it's a drive-to market, I'm still a very much big believer in those 
really heavy, heavy vacation markets, they're going to continue to do well in the future. Yeah. Are there other, other than the Smoky Mountains, are there any other areas that you're looking at or considering as a short-term rental person who wants to, you know, build a portfolio or are you just focusing only there? It's all you care about. I'm per, we're personally only focused there. We okay. investigated and looked at Joshua Tree in Southern California a while back. Again, a very heavy vacation market it has been blowing up over the last couple of years. Yep. But being that it's so far in Southern California, I mean, it's you could call it a like quote unquote remote location. Yeah. It doesn't have the drivability for so much of the country that a lot of these other vacation sure. markets do. And so I'm not as bullish on, on that market in particular, but if we found something that was great, that was amazing, that maybe we would go use as well, I could probably be talked into it. But as far as like serious consideration, it's it's just the Smokies for me right now. Okay. So let's talk about this whole escaping the nine to five. You kind of did it. It, it sounds like for an engineer, by the way, kudos, it sounds like it was a bit of a <laughs> like impromptu decision. I'm not an engineer and I spent a little bit, a little bit more time. My wife is my balancing. I talked about, thank God for spouses who balance you out. Yes. I'm a hair on fire. I'll risk all the money every single time I play a game. Like I don't care. Money uh, risk doesn't scare me. My wife is quite the opposite. So I actually had to like plot my uh, my escape from jail very carefully. You know, scratch it out on a wall every day. And so I saved a year's salary in cash, put it in the bank, and said, "This is the insurance policy. If things go off the rails with my, you know, quitting my job, we've got this money and, and we have time." Right. How did how how do you suggest not just how you did it? I know how you did it, but how do you suggest to people that they go about um, building the side hustle into something that can eventually help them escape? Yeah, I I think it's super important to plan it out. And I did. I, I'm again very similar to to you. I I planned it out and I said, okay, this is how much I'm making from real estate. This is how much I was making from my job. But I think that one of the biggest factors for us is that we were outside the U.S when we decided to do this or when we were going outside the US. And so I said, okay, well, our expenses are X today, but tomorrow when we land in Costa Rica, they're going to be Y. Yeah. And so that made it a little bit easier. And so if you can earn income in dollars and then spend your expenses in a currency that's valued at less than dollars or a country yeah. that's cheaper than, than the US, that brings that adds an additional layer of protection there. And sure. I said, okay, this is going to be okay. And just like truth be told, Mike, I was, I was willing to prioritize my mental health and well-being above and beyond the financial security that I yeah. wanted. Yeah. And so at that time in my life, I was like, screw it. I'm out. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, and they said like, oh, we'd love to have you back anytime. You're more than welcome. So I definitely mm. did have my plan B. The bridge wasn't totally burned on the way yeah. out. And I said, I could always go get another job. Like what I was doing was in really high demand. It still is in high demand. So it's not like it's so niche that I couldn't get a job doing that. Gotcha. So I said, look, if everything goes sideways, if this just all comes crashing down, this doesn't pan out the way we thought it did, I could just, again, go get another job. And then because I'm, I'm a neurotic planner, I said, well, just in case, let me do this, continue doing this Upwork stuff. Yeah. So I was doing some supplemental stuff and I said, okay, very much on the back burner. If, again, if things went totally sideways, could I pick up more hours doing remote work? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I think that that's that's kind of an easy way for people to ease into it is like have something going on the side. And then if you are really scared like me, have something that you could grab onto super quickly if need be. Yeah. Super smart. All right. One last thing I want to talk about is we, you mentioned it and I didn't really dig in, but I want to dig in just a little bit. You're, you're doing um, some multifamily stuff, some, some commercial stuff. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing here in my notes is you're not buying 
200 unit buildings, right? You're building like, you're, or you're buying the smaller multifamily stuff. Yeah. And, and like I've interviewed a lot of people who do multifamily and the, a lot of what I hear, a lot of what people's opinions are is like that five to 20 units is sort of no man's land. Like it's not big enough for some certain, you know, people want to have management in house and all. Like they want to do certain things. You can't do it unless you're over 50 units or whatever. So a lot of times this five to 25 unit uh, multifamily stuff gets overlooked by some people think it's, well, it's too big. I only do single. And the people who do multi go, that's too small. It's not worth my time. And so it's like an underva- not, not undervalued, but underexposed or people just aren't really looking for that. Why did you choose that range? Yeah. If anyone's watching this, the video, I've been like nodding my head voraciously <laughs> this whole time because that's exactly it. And truth be told, I didn't know that when I first got involved. It was literally, let me, I went into a new market. I was in Northern Kentucky and I found this eight unit and I was like, holy crap, this is like the same price as a single family in Southern California in the market that I'm used to investing in. So yeah. It just like blew my mind. And so I said, let me learn a little bit about this market. Let me see what there is to see. And so I was working with an agent at the time who was showing me other properties. And it was just like, it was only because it was in my price point and the price to rent ratio made sense. Okay. And so I used to study Japanese jujitsu and we talk about like a pickle jar zone, like where you're like kind of in your power zone, you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's where I was with this. It would push me a little bit outside my comfort zone in terms of unit count, but from a price point, I could very much get my head around it. Yep. So I said, let me just do more of this. And exactly to your point, the folks that were single family up to twos, threes, fours, that was too big for them. Yep. And the folks that are institutional or that are you know diehard multifamily, big time syndicators, whatever, it was too small for them. And my buddy who told me to go get laser focused, when I told him what I was doing, he's like, Michael, like it's genius. It's like, it's so clever what you're doing. And again, I didn't even realize I was doing it. It was just because it happened to work. Like the numbers worked out and I was yeah. like, okay. And so it wasn't until I had purchased a couple of these deals that I was like, kind of looking around and I'm like, there's no one else like bidding on these properties. Like there's no <laughs> yeah. competition. Like what's yeah. going on? Like, why am yeah. I the knucklehead? That's I'm the sucker, right? Yeah. I must be the sucker. If no one else is wanting to touch this stuff. Yeah. Um, and a, a big part of that was that there was a very heavy value add component to a lot of these properties. And so they were junky, they were beat up. And I said, I can like, I can do this. And I definitely got over my skis quite a bit. And I took on four at the same time. And that was a, a whole nother story we could, we could chat about. But again, just the landscape from a high level, these properties, these types of assets are, it's just like you said, in no man's land. No one wanted to deal with them. So I, I know in generally speaking, especially talking to like investors that are doing the, you know, 50, 100, 200, 500 units. What are the value adds though in like an eight unit? Like what are the typical, you go in and you can almost guarantee you're going to do bop, bop, bop. Like what are the things that you typically do on an eight unit, for example? Yeah. So everything that we were doing was physical renovations. So new flooring, new cabinets, new paint, new fixtures. Um, And some of these were in worse shape than others. Like I did a four family that needed all new plumbing and electrical, which was not part of the bid when I purchased the building. So you get the walls off and you're like, uh, this isn't going to (laughs) work. So So you're basically just renovating like you would a single family. It's just there happens to be eight of them. You're you're not like adding laundry facilities or doing anything like that necessarily. Well, yes, that as well, but okay. that isn't necessarily like these units, these buildings are, are, are pretty different from one another. So if we had like eight, eight single, eight, excuse me, if we had eight 
eight families, like all in a row and they were all brick and you could kind of figure out, okay, piecemeal it. Okay. I'm doing the same thing in all these units. Yeah. That would, would be a really great approach. But again, being so green and naive, I was like, I don't know, like whatever. So the physical renovations is great. Um, RUBS, which is uh, an acronym for ratio utility billing system is a really great one. Cause a lot of these buildings in this market I was in were built to single families and then only afterwards converted to multifamily. Gotcha. And with a single family, you have one master meter for the utilities. So one yeah. electrical meter, one water meter, one gas meter. And so you're paying for the utilities. Mm. And what I've often found, which I'm sure many of your listeners would agree to that is someone isn't paying for something, they're not really paying attention to how much they use. Yep. So heaters on in the winter and the front door and windows are open. Yeah. So going and putting the utilities back on the tenants can be a really great value add as well. Gotcha. And then looking at what the market rents were. That I think was one of the most impactful things. I bought a property, the rents were at 450 roughly per unit on a five family. We came in, we gave every, everyone was month to month. We gave them 30 days notice, rents went up to 650 per month. We had, I think two or three tenants stay and then two or three leave. And so immediately added $600 a month in re- revenue overnight. Yeah, that's like, awesome. So you look at that on a cap rate basis. Yeah. That's super impactful. And so looking for inefficiencies where I think so many people when they're starting investing, because I know I was right there. I bought turnkey. I was scared of any kind of value add. Didn't even know what the term meant or what that it existed. Yeah. I, it wasn't until I got a little bit more sophisticated in my investing that I was like, oh, the fact that they're paying $450 a month in rent means that there's an opportunity not yeah. that that's a bad thing to run away from. Yep. And so I think when we when you put on a bit of a different hat, different lens, you can start to see these things as pros as opposed to cons. What are you more uh, focused or excited about now, short-term or some of these multifamily um, things? Are you still doing the multifamily, the small multifamily or, okay. What yep. are you, what, I still, what, I st- yeah. Yeah, so I still do multifamily. Uh, the last three purchases have all been in the short-term space. Okay. And then with a new primary as well, which like I mentioned, we're house hacking, so short-terming that as well. Yeah. Yep. So all of the multifamily, I'm just stabilizing it right now, purchased over the last several years. I have this massive redevelopment project that's just been like killing me inside for the last couple of years. Like I mentioned, I had two fires in the course of construction and insurance battle. And Uh, I mean, just a real, real headache. So that's been taking up most of my mental bandwidth. So hence the reason for kind of the, the reshifting and saying, let's only do the easy stuff. Got it. So you, uh, being involved with Roostock, like you are as an educator, what are your general, we don't have to get real specific, and I know nobody has a crystal ball, so it doesn't really matter to get super specific, but what are your general feelings on the market and what's happening and what what it means for investors like us? Yeah, so I am a big believer that the best time to buy real estate was 10 years ago. The next best time is today. Yeah, I love it. And you, you I think, said it so nicely, Mike. When the, when the media start, starts telling you, run away, that's when we have to start running towards. Yeah, And so every, a lot of people are nervous. A lot of people are scared. A lot of people are sitting on the sidelines. And so what I'm hearing from... Roofstock works with local agents in all the markets that we operate in. And what I'm hearing from them is that we're no longer seeing 10, 20, 50 offers on properties and people aren't waiting for their highest and best. We're seeing one, two, three offers on each property. And so yeah. oftentimes sellers are just taking the first one because they don't know if a better one is coming. So they're grabbing, yeah. kind of stri- they're striking while the iron is hot. And so if we kind of reposition this and understand, well, okay, maybe we can start getting a little bit more aggressive with our offers because sellers aren't getting as many as they were in the past. Yep. And interest rates are going up. Yeah, and they kind of jumped up overnight. But if you look back to pre-pandemic levels and compare them against where we are today, 
yeah, they're a little bit higher, but they're not like, it's not outrageous. No. And so I think, and I'm still guilty of it too. We have very short-term memory. Uh, we can only, only remember yeah. what happened 30 days ago, a month ago, two months ago, what have you. And so yeah. if the numbers make sense, I wouldn't let the interest rate scare you just because of the fact that it was larger than it was two months ago or, or a year ago. Right. And also like if you're buying your first property or second property, and depending on what price point you're at, I mean, go look at how the numbers move on a $100,000 loan at a 4% interest rate versus 6%. Yeah. Yeah. 4% is better, but from a monthly cash flow perspective, it might not move the needle as much as you might think. Right. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I love that. Um, I, people ask me all the time, should I wait until the market gets better or whatever worse? Like, no, don't wait because especially when you're talking long-term. People who are buying long-term buy-and-hold stuff, it's it's insanity to wait, right? Because 30 years from now, 20 years from now, trust me, houses are going to be worth more than they are now. They just they just will be. So um, waiting this out and trying to time it is silly, especially when you're thinking long-term like that. Um, listen, we could do this all day. You're a fun guy to talk to. Clearly, we think a lot alike, which makes it awesome when someone agrees with everything I say. It just makes it so much more fun <laughs> to talk to them. Uh, but no, seriously, though, I, I, we, I could do this all day with you, but I want to respect your time. Uh, how can people get a hold of you if they want to um, or anything that you're involved? Like, how should people reach out if they're like, I need more Michael in my life? <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you asking. So I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Michael Album. I'm on Twitter at Michael Album. Uh, you can also come check me out at the Roofstock Academy, roofstockacademy.com, um, roofstock.com. Also, you can filter your way and, and find me there as well. Awesome. I'm a big user of Roofstock. I am a, a consumer. I'm a client. I love the service. I think it's awesome. I've sold properties on there. I bought properties on there. So it's a great service. You guys should go check it out. Go find Michael there. Michael, thank you for your time. And I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. It's been very, very interesting. And uh, thanks for being so transparent and sharing with everybody. I appreciate it. Hey, likewise, Mike. This was great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. Okay, that was fun talking to Michael. I cannot imagine living in a van and trying to do what I do remotely like that. But uh, I think I just need the convenience and the comfort of my own home to get things done. It's just me. But guys, if that sounds like fun to you, you should go and check him out and go to Roofstop Academy and check out what they got going on there. Lots of good resources for you. Uh, Michael was a fun interview and definitely love talking to people who have that adventurous spirit to just travel the world and figure it out and get their stuff done and, and build their business and their life that they want. That's the bottom line here. And what my takeaway was, he lived life on his own terms. Well, it sounds like he's dead. He is living life on his own terms, doing what makes him happy and adjusting along the way. Love it, love it, love it. Too many of us live a life we don't love and we're doing things we don't want to be doing. And while sometimes that's necessary for a period, you always should be tri striving to change things and create the life that you really want. And that's what I want you to do. Go out there and create the life you really want. We'll talk to you next time.